Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? How are you doing? I am Ray Harkins. You're listening to 100 Words or Less, the podcast, as you always are every Wednesday, just like clockwork, you know? At least I try to be. So that way you know that you have something to look forward to. I mean, I know I look forward to publishing these episodes, so, you know, I hope that you look forward to it as well. This week is an awesome one with Anthony Alzando from Ceremony. He, uh, I've known him for a little bit, like, you know, we just met each other at shows and stuff. And their new record is unbelievable. Came out on Relapse a couple of weeks ago, uh, Into the Spirit World, and it's it's really good. Ceremony continues to reinvent themselves, but still be the same band. Like, we actually, Anthony and I, dig into that a lot in this uh, conversation because, you know, the common narrative of this band is like, oh my gosh, every record is so different. Like, remember when they were a power violence band? Now they're like some weird post-punk thing. It's like, you know what? They The core of them still exists, and it's so cool to see them be able to, uh, yeah, exist in this world of ever-changing music preferences. And yeah, I just love the band so much. And Anthony was gracious enough to uh, yeah hang out with me on a drive that he was doing up in uh, Northern California after they played some record release shows recently. So, uh, yeah, more on him in a few moments, but, um, how are you? Okay. Like I find myself vacillating week to week on emotions and feeling good and solid and safe. And then some weeks I feel like just an emotional wreck. So frankly, this past week I felt like that. I felt like I was just, um, I don't know, started a new job and feeling a lot of stresses from that and feeling like, oh my gosh, did I make the right decision? Like, I don't know, long-term, I don't just all of these thoughts ping-ponging around in my head and consuming a lot of my mental headspace. And so I'm trying to figure out how to be able to kind of, you know, manage that side of anxiety and stress and fear and all that stuff and just tell, tell it to go away. I know it's easier said than done. And I know I like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not successful at it. I struggle with it constantly because, um, you know, I, I feel like when one area of your life kind of gets a little out of whack, your others are affected. I'm sure you experience this all the time. And so, I don't know, I would love to hear from you, the listener, 100 words podcast at gmail.com. You know, what, what strategies do you use? What techniques do you use to be able to, you know, not even compartmentalize, but to be able to like calm those voices, you know? Um, you know, I know myself that I definitely lean very much into my faith, very much into like my, you know, sort of quiet meditation moments and being able to, um, you know, share those moments with, you know, family and friends and basically just feel vulnerable, you know, feel like I am ready to, um, you know, express what I am feeling. And even though I might not be incredibly articulate in the way that I'm expressing my feelings to them, um, that they are still there for me and emotionally there for me and trying to, um, not even so much like offer up, you know, solutions or suggestions, but to be able to just, you know, be there with me, um, 
and that's, that's incredibly meaningful. Like as I'm talking about this right now, I'm kind of getting choked up because we're all in this weird, weird journey called life together. And we all have certain coping mechanisms and we all have these things that we're just terrified of and scared of, whether it's death, whether it's like, will I have a job next year? Will I be able to pay rent this month? These are all real, real emotions. And each one of us are going through a different journey on that. Um, and I want to encourage you to feel like you are not alone in this. Like that is what gives me, uh, I got, I wouldn't even call it faith, but that gives me the sort of emotional resonance that even though I may be just like punishing myself immensely, that there are people that are doing that as well. And that helps me calm that dumb inner voice that we all have, where it's just like, you know, we're going through 5 billion different scenarios and try to play them all out in our heads so that we get some sort of weird control None of us have control. We have no clue what happens on a day-to-day basis. And that um, is terrifying, but it's also uh, heartening in the fact that we're all doing this together, you know? So anyways, I know it's a very sort of heavy emotional output, but uh, it's what's what's been on my mind, you know? And uh, I just want you to know that I am here for you in whatever capacity I can be from that perspective. And in turn, I hope I can lean on you, Okay. Like I, I will be asking you of that at some point. I mean, you listen to this show on a weekly basis, so hopefully we forged some sort of relationship. And even though I may not know you, I probably do know you in some capacity, if that makes sense. So anyways, how to get it off my chest. But uh, here is the great discussion with Anthony. He's a guitarist of Ceremony, is a um, just an incredibly compelling dude. And I found out that we were both born in Las Vegas, Nevada, which is weird because most people aren't born in Vegas. So anyways... Here's the chat with Anthony, and I will talk to you, of course, after the episode is over. And I yeah. want I want to say uh, it's, I mean I was aware of the band prior to this, but uh, you know you guys were forever cemented in my brain when I think it was uh, it was either 2006 or 2007 Sound and Fury where uh, you did the Dead Kennedys cover the California Uberalis. Um, was uh-huh. that was that 2006 maybe I can't remember I'm losing my thought. <laughs> we likely covered both. We likely covered it at both 06 and 07. But okay. 07 is the year that um, that that people. Oh, I'm sorry. 07 is 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 the set rather that people will still reference and talk about. And uh, right, <laughs> that's, you're you're likely talking about 07. Yeah, we started off the set with the craft intro. Yes, um, there we go. Yep. Yeah. I had, I had beautiful long platinum hair. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, and just, you know, following you guys since then and, you know, obviously like booking you at Sound and Fury and just, you know, kind of getting to know you guys sort of casually over time. It, it it's uh-huh. really, it's really weird because, uh, you know, I don't think there are very many bands that feel like every time that you guys play a particular fest, you know, Sound and Fury being the one where it's like, it's always this like coming out party, <laughs> whether it's like, um, yeah. you know, whether it's like, you know, you, you guys are playing new songs or whether it's like, you know, you're just you're just obviously in a different uh, stage of the band. But at the same time, like you have no problem playing songs from the entire, you know, catalog or whatever. Um, does that 
I, I, I understand it's a kind of a big question, but just like, you know, do you guys kind of view those experiences as such where it's just like, okay, like we want to do something, you know, kind of different and special for this particular, um, fest. It doesn't even have to be sound and fury, but just, I don't know. I, that, sure. that, that is a really real thing that I I've noticed. And I'm sure you guys noticed no. too. Yeah. When, you know, I think it's, um, important for any performer in any, um, in any avenue of performing arts to take advantage when there are more eyes on you. Um, I feel, you know, when, um, we, we definitely put more time into a set list, um, than, uh, for a record release show than we would for just any show on tour. Um, you know, we just had our record release shows, uh, for our new album in the spirit world this last weekend. And we, we worked really hard to have a, um, to have the set, you know, not only be seamless, but to feature the new songs a certain way, have them go into which old song, you know, would they go well into, um, you know, how to incorporate the poems on the new out al- on the new album, um, try different, you know, more instrumentation. So, um, I've always been very conscious to, um, I've always been conscious to, you know, play, you know, play, play to the room accordingly. You know, if you're playing a basement show, you know, the set is going, should, should be a certain way. If you're playing, if you're headlining a sound of fury, um, and likely everyone there has seen you at least, you know, a lot of the majority of, of, of the crowd has seen you at least once, maybe even more, you know, and there's a lot of people there. It's important to do something different and special. Totally. Yeah. It's very, I mean, especially too, like once you, you know, a lot of the times and I'm sure, you know, because you guys were obviously a younger band when you were playing sound and fury in those years, you, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you, uh, in certain respects, you also want to stand out from the rest of the bands by doing, you know, like if you did a minor threat cover, like, you know, there's been 400 of those done in sound and fury, but you guys are like, no, let's, let's do do something a little bit different. Right. Exactly. Um, and I think we've always just had, um, a knack, maybe a knack, a knack for that sounds a little too, um, egomaniacal but but we've always just been attracted to that you know the element of performing and creating that does stand out and is you know um is different than other things that are in our lane or that you know um is different from what's going on around us yeah well and plus too it's like you know, people, people would like to think that, you know, they are like born into, you know, whatever music they are listening to at that particular moment. But it's just like, well, like, no, like you, you built off of all of these bands that you were into and not saying that dead Kennedy's was never like, you know, not cool. Cause of course it's like a foundational band for punk, but like, you know, people may have not listened to them in, you know, five to six years. And then all of a sudden you guys do that cover and you're just like, Oh, that's right. I, I really do like that Kennedy's or whatever, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Cause they're not, um, sound and fury is, you know, 
is a very um, is is very much a hardcore, at least then very much a hardcore festival. And of course, hardcore is born out of punk, you know, obviously. But a song like that, a song like California Uberalis is far more a a punk song or early, you know, doesn't or or an early hardcore song. It doesn't necessarily line line up with a modern hardcore sound. So even doing, you know, obviously, like you said, Dead Kennedys are a seminal band, and California Uberalis, you know, is a uh, is a song that most people know. That being said, it's not, you know, a it doesn't sound like what hardcore sounded like in 2007. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, and uh, you kind of putting the focus on you. Were you uh, born and raised in California? Because I, I, you know, just like simple biographical information, I really couldn't find out that much about you. <laughs> so we, we get to sure. do the, the, the that's great connected. Yeah, you're like that's what I Fantastic. intended. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, I was born in Las Vegas, Nevada. Shut up, dude. My father, Anthony. Yeah. Can I can I please interrupt you? Because I was born in Las Vegas, please. and I have never. Wow. I I very rarely meet people who are like born in Vegas. Yeah, Sunrise Hospital, dude. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yep. that's hilarious, man. Yeah, okay. So, t- yeah. so how how, yeah. how many years did you live there? I lived there for the first five years of my life. My father was um, a top forty radio DJ um, <laughs> and program director in, okay. in Las Vegas. Okay, and then we moved to um, Detroit, Michigan, for a year where my where uh, we moved to my dad's work he left radio and got into uh, record promotion he worked for uh he was a rate what what was called a radio rep um for then uh electro records and then uh we moved to a suburb of philadelphia um called uh where do we um in, uh, in mount laurel new jersey okay um we lived there for a year, and then in the summer of 1994, we moved to Runner Park, California. I was eight years old and um, started second grade there and lived there, lived in Northern California until two years ago. Got it. Okay. That, that's, um, I appreciate the context in the movie. <laughs> the, yeah, the moving around yeah. is definitely... Um, indicative obviously of your 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 dad's gig and trying to you know land at the appropriate spot and stuff like that um yeah did you comment for yeah for that for, industry for uh yeah for radio folk and for you know record industry and especially for promotion you know for record promotion and in the 90s for people to move around a lot for sure and did you um like being kind of, you know, moved around, I mean, granted you were young, so I'm sure you only have like really fleeting memories of these places. Um, Mm -hmm. did you feel like you always had to kind of like, you know, be that, uh, that, that chameleon to, you know, fit in with this new group of kids and try to find, you know, new friends and that sort of stuff. Or, you know, was that just kind of, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. There's no, there was no other way about it. Um, I remember, we were really into wrestling, me and my brother, um, when we were kids. I mean, I still, I still love wrestling, but we were really, you know, that was a big passion of ours when we were young children. And I remember there was this kid in our neighborhood that we met only a couple days before we moved out of Mount Laurel to California. 
and he had just the the sickest wrestling toy collection and was really deep into it. And I, I still vividly remember as an eight-year-old kid saying out loud, man, I wish we became friends a year ago because yeah. it would have been rad to have someone in our neighborhood um, with similar interests and uh, another friend. But we moved, yeah, so rapidly that it was, uh, you know, it was really hard to, um, you know, maintain relationships with people. And I know that sounds, you know, a little dramatic being, you know, for a six-year-old kid, you know, I, I, I wasn't thinking of it as maintaining a relationship, but, but the reality is, you know, you only, we only had so much time and, you know, in these places. And I think that's pretty common, you know, obviously for, uh, for children who have parents, you know, in the military, um, you know, I think that's a pretty common thing where you don't really have a lot of close, you know, a close friends until you're, you know, you, you plant roots in a foundation somewhere, which I didn't do until, um, until moving to Runner Park. Sure. Sure. Um, and so, you know, as you started to, you know, go to elementary school and start to get settled in, in California, you see, you mentioned you have a, a brother, is he older or younger than you? He's a year older. Okay. Got it. Oh, that's pretty That's pretty quick. Your parents uh, didn't waste any time there. <laughs> yeah. And my, I have a sister who's me, me and my brother and my first youngest sister are, are all within a year and a half. So, um, wow. They had my, my, yeah. So the three of us were in high school together at, at one point. Did, was that, um, I mean, cause that's not, I mean, it's common to have siblings, you know, the same high school and stuff like that, but you know, you guys were all like literally yeah. like a grade apart. Uh, was that weird at all? Yeah. Or was it just like, Oh, okay, that's fine. I never knew anything different, you know, by the sure. time, by the time I was eight years old, I was, I, uh, was one of five, you know? So most of, most of my life I've had a lot of siblings and, um, it was always, it was always really normal, you know, to just have a lot of, a lot of us around. And, um, I was always, I was always in school with another one of my siblings, no matter which stage, um, of my life I was in. Sure. So, um, it was was really, it was, it was always that way. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and so did you, uh, I guess like, like school care, you know, what, what kind of kid were you? Did you, you know, dabble in sports? Were you like a science kid? Did you like math? Like, where'd you find yourself? I was into sports until, you know, towards the end of my time in middle school. Um, once I got into high school and I was sports, sports was not on my radar and not something I was interested in at all. And, um, I got into punk, you know, and that classic tale of finding punk and really realizing sports land. Right. Um, right. but as a, as a young, as a young, young child, I was, I played, I played sports year round. I played baseball, basketball and football. And then I would, um, during basketball season, I, uh, I wrestled, um, also. So, I played sports year round from the, from second grade to seventh grade. Um, but I always, it's funny. I don't know. I think looking back, I think it must've just been for the social element because there was never one day where I had sports practice where I wasn't bummed. It always felt like a chore and never 
sports never felt fun to me. Um, it just felt like something to do to hang out with my friends really. Right. And, um, you know, like doing well was fun and felt good, but it, I knew I wasn't meant to play sports when if I didn't do well in the game or in the meet, but my team won, I was upset. I would much rather myself do well and my team lose than my team win and me do bad. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, and I, I remember realizing that towards like probably in like sixth grade and thinking, I don't think this is for me. Um, but I was always really into music. You know, my, my family um, was in the music business and um, I, you know, we started going to concerts when I was six years old. I went to um, Meatloaf, Battle of the Hell tour in 1993 um, me and my mom my dad and my older brother and then from then going to shows regular uh, was a, a regular part of my life sure. um, from then until until now so that's really what me and you know me and my brother are so close in age and we shared a room um, that was that was that was the biggest interest of ours you know was was you know we were going to record stores and we were in elementary school, picking up um, things that we didn't have. And, and luckily, you know, my dad, because again, being in the industry, if it was on a major label, we could ask him because he knew, you know, it's like any industry, you know, he, he knew all, all of the reps from all the other labels. So if, you know, if the new Jodeci record or the new, um, you know, Antichrist Superstar or there's, you know, there's a lot of records that we, um, we just be like, dad, this record's coming out next week. Can you get it for us? Um, and he would be able to do so. So yeah, our, our CD collection as, as, as kids was, you know, in the thousands. Yeah, no, that's and, that, um, that, that, and that is really, um, it, it's cool too, because obviously with that access to the music, you could sample. Cause you know, when you're a kid, you don't pay attention to, you know, scenes or like, you're just listening to music because you no. like, you like it and it's good. And to have that, like that access to literally everything, like you said, I mean, whatever, mentioning Marilyn mm-hmm. Manson and Jodeci in the same sentence. It's like, I think that is what kids, you know, just would love to be exposed to where it's just like, show, show it all to me and then I'll figure out what I like. And so having that, exactly, uh, like <laughs> not even knowing, not even knowing you that well and meeting you just in passing, hearing that sort of origin mm-hmm. story of you, I'm like, Oh yeah, I see why Anthony is the way that he is. Like just, just in the <laughs> yeah. way that you express yourself musically, I'm just like, oh yeah, you throw everything in a blender and then you figure it out. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah, and and I guess um, you know I never really um, put things in such a tangible way like that, but you're right. You know, we would go into our family record collection in, in our living room, and you would find things that you have heard of. You know. Um, and see if, and you would check it and we would check it out for ourselves or you would just find things because, you know, you would throw something on because the cover looked cool. You know, that's how, that's how you got, or me, you know, that's how I got into a a lot of records when you're, you know, when you're under the age of 10, you have no, like you said, you have no concept of, of scenes or really even genres apart from, you know, you know that there's pop, you know, that there's rap, and you know that there's rock. That's really it. 
you know? Yeah. Um, and so having no grasp on, on any scene or, or genre, you just go with what looks cool, you know? And if that record is, you know, uh, inspires you or, um, makes you feel anything in any way, then you, you know, get there, get their other records. But I remember getting into print, um, just going to our CD collection and going, um, and, and asking my dad, Hey, uh, I've heard about this artist Prince, which, which record should I start with? And he said, purple rain. And we went to, and so I go to our, our family collection. And I remember we only had, um, the, the three disc greatest hits in 1999. And I was like, uh, well, dad, we don't, we don't have a record called purple rain. And he was so mind blown that we didn't own purple rain because it was such a, not only a seminal record for Prince, but just for pop culture and for music in general. And, and him being, you know, a, a pop DJ in the eighties, um, somehow it just must've gotten lost or, um, who knows why we didn't have it in the house, but he took me to backdoor disc and tape in Kitati, California. And we bought and bought purple rain for me right there on the spot. And then I had 1999 and purple rain and the greatest hits loved all of it. So for that year for Christmas, I asked for every Prince CD, um, nice. that was, that had been, that had been released up until that point. So until then it was, um, so I got, I got every Prince record, uh, from for you and from 78 to the emancipation triple disc, uh, in 96. Um, so that was, I mean, that, that's how I got into Prince, but that was, but that sort of thing was, was a very common in mine and my brother's life. And, you know, uh, I obviously it's a great privilege to have that access to so much music, um, as a youth, you know, um, but that, but that, that was just normal, um, everyday life. Support for today's show comes from Sonos, the best speaker system I have ever owned, heard, witnessed in my entire life. They do such a good job of making it extremely, extremely easy for you to open the box, plug it in, get it set up and up and running within like five minutes. And you can outfit your entire house like I have. Like my son's room has some speakers. Our living room has speakers. And I'm connecting our new Sonos bar to our TV very soon. And I could not be more excited about that. So my son, he listens to Bon Iver every night as he goes to sleep. Like, tell me how much you like the Sonos, Raymond. I love it so much. So he loves it so much and I can put a sleep timer on it. So it plays for 15 minutes as he goes to sleep and then boom, he's done and he's out for the night. It's great. And also we can be listening to different music downstairs while he is listening to Bon Iver on his speaker in his room. It's such a cool thing. So please go to Sonos.com and you can learn about their entire product line because they have incredible speakers for any shape or size of room and house that you have. You know, you can outfit your apartment from top to bottom with this stuff and you will listen to music differently. So like I said, go to Sonos.com. I love them so, so much. And so does my son. Yeah. Sonos, thank you very much. And please listen to music differently. Get yourself on Sonos. Okay. Now here's the rest of the show. This is, you know, me kind of playing uh, armchair psychiatrist, but like you, you, you've always struck me as a person that is, um, 
you know, confident in kind of who they are comfortable in your skin to obviously be able to experiment with the, you know, variety of different, uh, styles that you had just, you know, I mean, from your fashion sense on stage and that sort of stuff, um, had, had that sort of, uh, cause obviously it takes a certain level of just like, well, yeah, I, I'm going to do this. I don't care what people think of me. Um, had, right. you know, had that confidence kind of like always sort of like been there or was that something you kind of like grew into once you, you know, felt more comfortable expressing yourself in those ways or, you know, how did that kind of manifest itself? I think it, I think, um, it started with getting into prints. Um, I I was prints for Halloween in the third grade. And I remember wearing really just wearing my mom's clothes, like finding clothes of hers that I could, off and that was sort of in the vein of something Prince would wear um, and doing my makeup like Prince um, and that that was my first memory of you know going out in public um, and wearing um, you know wearing w- w- women's clothing mm-hmm. um, but I was always any any chance to wear to wear pleather or go to an event as a kid where I could wear makeup or face paint. That's, that's always what I wanted to how that's always how I wanted to present myself. And I, I think it started with Prince, but then when I got into punk, it was, you know, getting into, you know, Iggy pop and Robert Smith and even, uh, and then all of, you know, the Batcave, death rock stuff. And even, you know, early Mike Ness, you know, that all very much influenced my, my personal aesthetic. Um, yeah. From there forward. Yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah. Cause they, <laughs> it is once you start to see, you know, all of the ways that you can experiment with, you know, your looks and what you can do. And then, yeah, you just like, Oh yeah, like that's cool. Like I want to try that out. You know, I want to try black under my eyes or I want to try right. black nail polish and like that sort of stuff where it's just like, yeah, just, just try it and see how you feel about it. Right. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, as you started to, you know, like dive deeper, you know, into music and like you said, you know, sports kind of started to fade to the background when you were in high school and, you know, punk started to really, really kind of consume you. Um, I imagine your experience is very similar to a lot of other people's where it's like, you know, you just start going to, you know, a ton of shows and getting exposed to all of this sort of stuff. Did you kind of immediately take to the idea of like, yes, I want to be in a band. I, I, I need to figure out how to do that. Yeah. I started playing guitar before I got into punk. Um, so I was playing, I was trying to play with people before, you know, my, my eighth grade year, I got a guitar and, um, my friend group started to shift from people who I, you know, went to elementary school with or just classmates or people who I played on teams with to people who played music. Um, so by the time I got into punk, I'd been playing guitar for a few years. And the great thing about punk is that, you know, the, the, your, your abilities as a musician is secondary. Um, you know, it's all, it's really just about you, like you start the band and you're in a band and you'll, and you'll figure out how to play later. So there were so many people in punk that were interested in playing music, you know? Um, so that it kind of had, I kind of, um, 
it was sort of reversed for me. I gravitated towards punk because so many people in the punk scene wanted to play music as opposed to getting into punk and then wanting to start a band. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, that, um, I, I, I like, so, I really like so that, that different part. Yeah. I, I like that differentiation because it, it, it is imp- like you were looking for people to play with. And so then the people that you found were interested in punk and playing that. So you're just like, okay, well I'm going to lean into this, you know, as opposed to so right. many people where it's like, yeah, you know, they get into descendants or minor threat and they're just like, Oh yeah. Like I, I I'm going to try to figure out, I, I could probably play guitar, but you were already there and just waiting. Right. <laughs> it's like right. your life could have gone so differently if it was someone else where it's just like, Oh yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I'm playing, I'm playing this eighties pop. You're like, okay, that's fine. I, I know how to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I was playing in bands before punk bands, just local, um, I don't, you know, just rock bands, you know, but I started to lean more into the, in, into punk, um, a, because of, straight edge and be, um, you know, the, the community that, that, that surrounded it was, um, a very positive, positive thing in my life, you know? Um, and there's not, there wasn't, if you're, if you're 16 years old, you know, I was playing music. I was a freshman and I was in bands with people who had just graduated high school and, the, the stuff that we were playing, there weren't other bands to, to do weekends with. There weren't, there wasn't a scene around it. You just wrote music in your practice space and hope that you can get on shows and cross your fingers, you know, where obviously, you know, I don't need to explain this to anyone who's listening to this podcast right now, but there was, you know, the, um, the communal aspect of punk, um, was was um, was something I was I was very drawn to, sure, and had a very positive you know impact on my life, mm-hmm. and um, that that drew you know that really um, allowed me to sort of walk away from the kind of stuff I was playing and the kind of you know um, to 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 starting punk bands and hardcore bands. Sure, sure. I, I'm gonna take a stab in the dark. Your um, I presume with all the, the, the bands that you were playing in prior to ceremony, like did you do any touring or anything like that? Or was that primarily like ceremony no. was your first experience of tour? Um, ceremony was not my first experience with touring. I filled in for a band called these days who was, um, who was a hardcore band who JD who plays bass in ceremony and Alex Capasso, who was ceremony's original second guitar player. It was their band. I was filling in for, um, and then there's a band from our town called Lifelong Tragedy, um, who I filled in on tour with. So I had done two tours before, um, when I was in high school, before Ceremony started playing, um, outside of California, Got but, it. but both, both hardcore bands and both like in the same scene and same members as, as Ceremony. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The, the usual first experience of, you know obviously sleeping on floors and right. you know, going to Del Taco after the show and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, um, Wendy's, Wendy's baked potatoes, no butter. Of course. <laughs> classic, classic. Um, yeah. Yeah. So did you, uh, I guess, did you like the touring experience? Like as you started to experience it? Oh my God. It was, it was the greatest 
it was the greatest thing ever. Um, I, I told this, uh, I told this story, um, on a podcast a couple days ago with Damian Abraham from fucked up turned, turned out a punk. So I won't bore you bore the listener with it too much, but the first show I ever played out of town was in Minneapolis and there's no shows in between California and Minneapolis. So it took us two days to get there and there were zero people paid at the show. And that was one of the greatest days of my entire life. Right. Just playing, playing in another time zone. Yep. Totally. Just was at with, you know, at, even though there was no one there, there was, it was at a, it was in a real, uh, a place with walls and we were playing our music. Um, as a junior in high school, that, that, I, I, it was really hard for me to, to wrap my head around that. And, you know, it, it was so, um, I, I, even then I, I felt so privileged to be able to, um, play music outside of my hometown. And, um, it was, it was a, it was just an unreal experience. Sure. Yeah. I love, I love touring, um, you know, from, from the, from start. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. Cause that, that idea is so special. Just the, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if, if no one shows up, uh, it just, the idea of being like the music that I've created with my friends, like took me here. And that is so crazy to think about where it's like, yeah, you know, whatever right. you, you go back to high school and your friends like, Oh, what did you do over the weekend? It's like, Oh yeah. You know, or like, or summer vacation. You're like, Oh yeah. I went to like Minneapolis and played in front of you know, negative four people. And it's like, and it was the best. Everyone's like, yeah. oh, oh, I just went to the beach. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like we, I, I knew that what we were doing was not normal for someone my age. And um, the, it was never lost on me, the, you know, the significance that that experience was having on me. Yeah. No, that's super, that's super cool. And so, you know, kind of, uh, as you were matriculating through school, like, was there a life path that was kind of, you know, set out for you as far as like, Oh yeah. Like maybe I'll, you know, be a doctor or lawyer or anything that. No. Yeah. It was I like, always, I always just wanted to play music. God. Yeah. That's the only, um, I never considered going to Santa Rosa junior college or, you know, any, any of the things that were sort of standard in our town. And, um, you know, and there, there are people in ceremony who have done amazing things in, in, in school. You know, our bass player, Justin, um, is getting his PhD in pure mathematics. And Ross just did an MFA program for poetry at the University of uh, Syracuse. And, you know, you can do both and you can have more than one interest, but this but I guess what I'm trying to say is this was never just an interest for me. This was um, the thing always clear of what it, I, it was, it was clear that this is what I wanted to do and to work as hard as I can to, um, to play music as much as I, as much as I possibly can. Sure. Sure. Um, and so I'm not going to go blow by blow through, you know, the formation of ceremony and stuff like that. Cause obviously that's been covered in many different places, but, um, you know, as the, you know, as people started to pay attention to what ceremony was doing, um, and things started to, you know, like you guys were able to put tours together and, you know, put out records and all that sort of stuff. 
when did it for you kind of feel like this was something, you know, and I use the, the air quotes around this word, like real, you know, where it's just like, holy crap. Sure. It doesn't even have to be like, obviously a big show or this like, you know, moment, you know, where the, the clouds part and all of a sudden, you know, you've been just bestowed the idea of, you know, playing in a full-time band or whatever. Um, when did right. you kind of, when did you personally feel like, oh my gosh, like, wow, this is, uh, this is like nothing I, I ever would have anticipated happening. We were very fortunate from the inception of the band to have had people pay attention to us. We, you know, we had sold our demos um, at on the Lifelong Tragedy um, at the Lifelong Tragedy merch table for a few months before we started playing shows. So there were um, so our friends um, and sort of peripheral friends knew the words to our songs at, at our first show, and that is something that none of us ever experienced before. Um, in any of the other bands that we had played in. And then we got offered to play Positive Numbers Fest um, just a few months after um, playing. And that was a big... We, that, we fucking made it. We made it. Right, uh, right. But I do have this vivid memory of playing Gilman one time because our, our friends from, from North Bay, you know, rolled, rolled hard for ceremony shows in the, the first couple years. And I remember playing Gilman, I think with, it was us, Internal Affairs, and Lights Out. And I remember our set being so killer. It was super fun. All the things happened, you know, people singing along. And, and I remember not recognizing one person singing along to our band. And none That's of our friends best. were there. And I was like, oh my God this this may be a real thing we would you know out, outside of our of our town and our you know little scene um because still at positive members it was super it was an honor to, to play at, at such an early stage of the band but no one knew us at that show you know um we didn't it's not like that we 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 killed it by any means um but I remember, I feel like I remember the first time we had a good reaction um, that, was not, that was not a result of us getting all of our friends into the show. And that was a pretty big, uh, big deal for me. Totally. No, I, I, I really am glad that you mentioned that idea of like singing a lot, like someone you don't know singing along to you. That's when it like it just, you're like, what the hell just happened? Like, who are you? How did you find us? Like, you just want to like interview that person. Cause I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's so cool. Right. <laughs> um, in a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date in the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right. 
people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors, Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. And, you know, kind of... Not even on the flip side of that, but this the the idea because you know, as as you well know, um, and have seen many of your friends kind of go through this. You know, hardcore is a, a very you know fickle and transitional phase in many people's lives, and obviously their music tastes um, you know are reflective of it. You know, bands usually have like a you know two to four year length of being you know a, a quote unquote allowed to be cool and hardcore or whatever. Um, and obviously, ceremony was definitely like you said. You had the um, you not even luxury, but you had the, uh, the privilege to, you know, kind of be lifted up to that, Mm -hmm. that status initially. Um, you know, were you, and it seems like you guys were always kind of, uh, aware of that idea because it was like, well, yeah, we don't want to be like completely swallowed up in this, like, you know, hype machine or whatever the case may be. Um, and and you had the, I, I don't know, maybe this is me just reading way too much into it, but it was always kind of this like, winking acknowledgement that you guys had where it's just like yeah i understand like you know yeah we're, we're a hardcore band obviously and like we always will be but like you know we're not gonna mm-hmm. be just confined by that um was that right uh, well we, yeah yeah we're yeah obviously we are not and we are not just you know we we are a lot of things and we a lot of a lot of things have influenced our band you know and uh punk and hardcore is one of them and we've we knew i mean from our i mean our second record so nothing moves you has a lot there's a lot on there that is not traditional hardcore or or punk and we um and that's that's how we've been able to uh stay a band and you know um keep an interested audience is is by um, is by not only being a hardcore band because um, the reality is if there's no hardcore band um, whose whose best record is their sixth record, you know, yep, that's not that's just not how it goes, right? Um, and and the fact that we were we were never conscious of that we were never we never said to ourselves guys we need to we need to not just be this or we need to quote unquote evolve or we need to do this so we can have a lasting career like that thought or conversation never happened we were always just genuinely interested in doing other things and we have always had very diverse there's always been a very diverse taste amongst the band you know so um you know there are there are people in, in our band who tell the truth don't really like hardcore and have never really liked hardcore that much right you know they have they have the bands that they like but it's never been a huge part of their life and that's been that way since the very beginning of the band. Um, and so I know I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, veering off here, but I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, we, 
we've always, even when, even when our music was more just straightforward, traditional style, hardcore, uh, we never sort of viewed us as only that. Totally. And I think that, you know, something, cause I, I feel like, you know, anybody that like looks at ceremony and, you know, <laughs> just the idea of like the, uh, the narrative of the constant reinvention of the band, like, you know, every single new record that comes out is obviously, you know, slightly different than the last one or, you know, even drastically different, mm-hmm. but like everyone always is like, Oh my gosh, dude, I can't even believe ceremony. Like, this is nuts. Like, you know, I'm just obviously exaggerating, but like, yeah. Yeah. But, but it's like, it, there's so much like that. I mean, I personally, maybe just because I paid attention to what you guys have done over the course of, you know, the tenure of your band, but like you guys are still in my mind, the same band, you're sonically different. And like, obviously, you know, you're right. made, made up of different components, but like not only aesthetically, but then just the, you know, the attitude in which you approach these things, it, it's not like you've morphed into this like unrecognizable band where it's just like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, I don't, now they're all wearing tuxedos on stage or whatever, you know, it's like, I don't know. Right. 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 Yeah. I feel like the precedent to what the band is now, um, was laid out very early on, you know? And if, uh, if, you know, you are paying attention, um, then I, I feel like that's rather clear. Right. Yeah, exactly. That It's like, yes, you can still like, you know, we are still using, you know, we, we got, we got drums, we got some guitars, like, you know, these are things that we have, yeah. like, you know, it's not like we've abandoned all this completely. Um, right. You know, and kind of on that tip, like, you know, you, you as a band and maybe you as a person as well, you guys have seemed to, you know, been uh, maybe not impervious because I'm sure people's opinions on like how terrible your new record is like, you know, filters up to you or whatever. Like, you know, I'm, of course I'm exaggerating, but like, you know, people have expressed yeah. that for the last couple of records because they're not, you guys aren't the band that, you know, whatever they grew up with or what have you. Um, you, you guys just obviously like take that in stride and are just like, well, I'm sorry, but like, this is who we are. Um, you know how well, but, the reality is, the reality is, is that the people who say and feel that are, um, the vast minority. Um, and they just, they, they get, their voices are the loudest, but their influence is, um, very non-existent. And, um, if you look at, just the trajectory of our band, you know, we've only have been able to play in front of more people and have, and gain more um, opportunities and have um, been able to do more with the band as time has gone on. And that wouldn't be possible if the majority of our fan base, you know, uh, shared that sentiment that you just um, said. So, I feel it's important for us because, you know, like comments will get sent to us every now and again. And, you know, um, of people, um, you know, quote unquote, missing the old ceremony. But the reality is it was very short. Um, so most people who were around when those first records came out, um, have been long gone for over 10 years. And then a lot, most, 
all other people have gone on the ride with us because they too have grown and evolved. Um, so it's like, if a literal handful of people are the ones, you know, missing the old whatever, it's really is just a handful. They're, they're just the ones who feel the need to uh, voice that publicly. Um, because again, the reality of the, of the situation is that no one actually wants the old ceremony. It wouldn't, if we made those, if we made that kind of style of music now, it would be really, it would be pathetic. And I cannot think of one punk or hardcore band who, um, who 15 years after their inception was making the same kind of music as good as they were when they started. Um, that's never been done before. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. You know, punk is a, um, is a, is a young person's, you know, it comes from a, any, any, any art that's good is good because it's honest. And when you start doing something because you feel like you have to do it or because that's what your audience wants, um, the art is going to suffer. Um, which is why all, you know, a lot of bands who aren't in or with that style of music anymore are still making that style of music why it's not why it doesn't why it's not special anymore now there are bands who do who do that really well you know but they're very few and far between and that's why a lot of hardcore bands or punk bands only have two LPs you know if, if there's a, a hardcore band that has three or four LPs that's that's uh, they're an anomaly totally. you know and a lot of times that third and fourth LP is not very good unless you're terror and you could continue to make great record after great record. Um, but again, they're, they're an exception to, to the rule. Absolutely. No, totally. Um, and, and kind of on that same tip, the idea that, uh, you know, do you like the sort of business aspect of the band? Cause I know that you handle, you know, a decent amount of it from either, you know, working with labels and booking agents, that sort of stuff. Um, is that kind sure. of just part and parcel or is that, um, you know, just something that, that you, you enjoy doing? Um, I care a lot about this band and care a lot about what happens to this band. Uh, therefore I just have a natural interest in making sure everything um, is running smoothly and we don't want to pay a manager. So Andy and I do most of that, but it's really just as simple as that. You know, it's, it doesn't feel like work to me because it's, um, I'm doing something that I really care about. Um, and between Andy and I, we could, um, between the two of us, you know, having two of us, we, we are able to do, all of that, all of the managerial aspects of being in a band. And, um, I just don't, I don't, I don't feel comfortable being a band for 15 years and building, building a fan base and, and building, you know, uh, a large discography and all the things that come around with being a band for 15 years and then just handing it over to, to someone else so they could profit off it. You know, that doesn't feel right. Um, that said, I mean, we're not, it's not like that we're opposed to, 
to the idea of managers really works for a lot of bands and there's a scenario where it could work for us, but um, we've just never crossed the bridge where we felt like we needed one. Yeah, totally. No, that makes sense. Yeah. It's like, you, you know, some bands are able to operate in that world when you have, you know, a member of the band that is willing to, you know, kind of be engaged from that perspective. Um, you know, cause some people like they just don't either have the patience or the time or the wherewithal. And, um, you know, then it just kind of like, well, yeah, like no one in the band can handle it cause everyone's terrible at it. So let's, let's pass it along right. to somebody else or whatever. So, um, right, totally. and so y- y- the, the band has also seemed to exist in this really interesting, um, place where you know you you guys you know do a decent amount of touring and you're active and obviously uh, you know are are relatively prolific as far as putting out music and um doing that sort of stuff but then you all have like real lives like you were alluding to earlier with you know different members pursuing uh you know scholarly uh things and then you know uh, just just people being involved in life beyond just uh, you know just the band um do you think that that is uh, helpful for you guys from a sort of longevity perspective um, or, you know, uh, not saying that it's hindered the band because like, Oh, we can't tour because you know, someone's doing stupid school or whatever. But um, you know, how has right. that, how has that been able to, I guess, be beneficial to the band? We, because we have so many other things going on in our lives, it means that we haven't had to solely rely on ceremony. Therefore we haven't, um, you know, we've never had to tour eight months out of the year and get burnt out on the material and each other and break up. Um, it's also allowed us to, you know, to take time away from each other and, you know, come up with something for an, our next record that is that feels fresh. Um, and having other things in our life, you know, it, it may have been harder we probably would have made the mistake earlier on to not change as much because the reality is us, us changing as a band is what has been able to keep the band alive and keep our audience interested, no matter how many um, tens of people it disappoints, you know, um, (laughs) (laughs) that has what it's just a objective truth that us, evolving and changing and, and maybe evolving is not the right word, but, but changing over time is what has allowed us to um, keep our audience interested. And it's very possible that if we sol- were um, solely relying on this band for our livelihood, that we could have made a mistake earlier on to not shift as much. And then we would have um, created a disinterested audience. Um, and that could have been, and that could have been the end of the band, you know? Um, you know, I don't like to speak in hypotheticals or really in the past, but I think that us having other things have, has allowed us to, uh, continue to move forward artistically, which is what has allowed the band to continue. Yeah, that's true. I, I I didn't think about it in those terms of the idea that um the uh you know the the pressure that bands feel like once the band becomes like a, a machine and the livelihood and like you know managers and booking agents and you know your mm-hmm. crew and all this stuff depends on you, you know you're much more reticent to make these stylistic shifts 
Um, unless like, you know, obviously everybody's in the same page and it's just like, okay, like we're willing to take this risk. We're going to be, you know, bigger than, you know, muse or whatever. But, but yeah, that, that idea, you never know that totally. You You never know. You never know what, what you're going to do well and to put any sort of emphasis on what the audience, uh, I'm sorry, what the audience wants, or you feel like they, they, or, or what you feel like they want. That's when you've, that's when you've lost, you know, um, never have we written a song or gone in the direction because we thought that the audience would want that, or that's what they, they, they need. You know, we, we write music that we write because we know that it's good. And then obviously we want, we do want people to like it. It's not like that we're trying to say, we don't care what anyone thinks, but when we're creating the audience is not a variable at all. And I think that allows us to make um, sincere art and that, and, you know, and the audience can tell when something is a lie or when something is honest. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, The last thing I want to hit on was the fact that, you know, you, uh, you know, you're, you're an adult, like, you know, you're married, like you're, Mm -hmm. you know, by, by all stretches of the term, you know, an adult. Um, Two cats. Yeah, exactly. You know, you, they're, they're, life is existing for you in ways that, you know, it wasn't existing for you as a 16 year old. Um, but, you know, clear, sure. clearly you're still engaged with um, not, not only music and obviously participating in the creative arts, but then, you know, still edge, you know, still, uh, still vegan from what mm-hmm. I can gather. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And so like, yep. you know, like that's not common. Um, I guess what kind of keeps you, um, beyond just the fact that obviously this is you as an individual, um, I guess what keeps you kind of engaged and caring from that perspective? Well, I've always attributed my life. It's just like, it's like sexuality. You know, a lot of people who um, say they're straight edge or say they're vegan or, um, or are involved or are involved in any sort of subversive lifestyle are tourists and they're kind of just trying it out um, and they're seeing if it works for them or they're doing it because their friends are doing it or they're just killing time, you know, um, where it never felt that way for me. I always felt a genuine connection um, to all of, all of those things that you just mentioned. And I've, you know, I know it's such a cliche thing to say, but I never felt like a, just a, a, like a pedestrian person. You know, that's, that's never been, been me and been my way. Um, so when I say I attribute to sexuality, it's like, I don't, I've never had a choice in who or what I'm attracted to. That's just who I am. And I, and I truly do feel that, um, you know, I never have the urge to sip alcohol once in my life. I always thought it was fucking stupid. I never understood why anyone would want to uh, pay money to consume something that is uh, objectively poisonous and harms you and harms the people around you. I thought I had that conscious thought as a, as a young person, Um, not, you know, I wasn't, I didn't get industry as thinking that maybe I would, huh, I, yeah, I kind of understand this and maybe I'll, hopefully I'll keep feeling this way. Um, to me, it was always just a clear decision. Um, 
not harming innocent creatures so I could feel full, again, seems just like an obvious decision to make. Um, it's not, it's not really even a decision. It's just how I feel. Um, you know, much like how I think anyone, um, feels regarding their sexuality. You know, it's not a choice that you make. And that's how I feel about, um, any sort of lifestyle decisions that I make. Um, obviously I have interests and I, there are things that, uh, I, I, you know, I do have tastes that have developed over time and my certain tastes have evolved just like with anyone, but there are certain things. And I think any, you know, true, true creative or true artist or subversive person would agree that it's not a choice that you make. It's, um, you are, it's just something that is, um, like instinct. Yeah. It's like, it's baked into you. Like this is right. It's like the, I mean, I do, I love the word, you know, tourist or pedestrian because it, it, it just describes a lot of the way that, um, you know, music is a very transactional relationship for people, you know, whether it's just like, just, you know, I'm just going to turn on the radio or whatever. And like, yeah, music is on or whatever. But like, you know, when people like, you and I and many of our friends dive into it and, you know, get absorbed by it. Um, that is a different relationship than this is simply just being a form of entertainment, even though it is entertaining. It's a whole different thing. Of course. And there are, there are genres of music that I am that way towards, you know, I, there are, I have a very broad, um, taste and appreciation for music and some of them, some of those I treat as junk food. You know, a cupcake isn't meant to provide you nutritional value, but it tastes good and you eat it and you move on. And then there's something like Kraftwerk or Fugazi or whatever, you know, that, that have a a more substantial effect on your being. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's like this, this, yeah, (laughs) this is not only enriching for the soul, enriching for the mind and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, yeah. I totally understand what you're saying. Um, but Anthony, thank you so much for hanging out, dude. Honestly, this was really enjoyable for me. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was, it was, it was great. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. How was that chat? Right. Just, I just feel thankful that I can have these discussions with people, um, have them be super engaged and, you know, willing to go in a lot of different places and be reflective. Like anytime I ask, you know, sometimes very convoluted questions, uh, when a person takes a beat and is like, Hmm, like when they think about it, it's, I don't know, it's just really, really compelling. And I love that engagement. And I hope that you get that engagement and you feel that sort of connectivity as you're listening to these chats, because, uh, that's what I strive to get is just that, that real kind of like, Hmm, that's a not like, Oh, wow. You've asked a really thoughtful question, but like, huh, I haven't considered it that way. I just love those moments. It's, it makes me so happy. So anyways, uh, next week we have a really interesting conversation that actually got brought up, uh, via the episode that I did a couple weeks ago with Scott Krauss from earth crisis, where we walked through each of their full length records, which, you know, still to this day, I mean, even though it's only been a couple weeks, but it's probably one of my favorite episodes that I've ever done on this podcast. So if you haven't listened to it, dive back. But next week is Shane Durgee, who is the vocalist for Framework and 
which was pre-Earth Crisis, which technically was like an early formation of Earth Crisis because they're, you know, they're, they were kind of one in the same band when that thing was all starting. So Framework, if you haven't listened to them, incredible. Like I remember in my early hardcore days when I discovered Earth Crisis and then had to know as much as humanly possible about them, um, I discovered Framework and was like, wow, this is just as good. It's like a little bit more metallic, but you know, like really, really good. But anyways, Shane was a vocalist for that band. And uh, yeah, it was funny because it just, you know, a friend of mine connected me and I was like, wow, I'm talking to the vocalist of Framework. And he was totally down to talk about the early days of the formation of the, the Syracuse scene as it were. So Shane is on next week, and uh, for those of the, those of the uh, old heads, you'll be very excited about that conversation. And even the younger heads who are just like, yeah, I like Earth Crisis. Done. So that's what we got next week. And until then, please be safe, everybody. Special shout out to Shonos. They're the best speaker system I have ever witnessed in my entire life. I cannot tell you how much your music listening experience will change once you get your first Sonos system, set it up within five minutes. You are up and running, connected to your Wi-Fi network. It's beautiful. It is seamless and it sounds unbelievable. Thank you very much, Sonos. Visit Sonos.com to learn more. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, JabberjawMedia.com. Shh. Hey, Miles. Yes. It's Jack from work. Yes. Hi. Did you know that we host a daily news and culture podcast where people can I go to get caught up on know. what is yes. happening? Are you? Yes. Are you confused about that? You're talking about the Daily Zeitgeist. I just to wanted show to that make sure you knew and that everybody knew that you could listen to us every day, twice a day, talk about what is happening and they could learn everything without feeling the life drain from their soul yeah i think at the daily zeitgeist we like to give people a balance of just enough news that they feel informed and just enough laughs that they're not overwhelmed and can have a decent day after listening so guys listen to the daily zeitgeist on the iHeartRadio app apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are given away for free